Story six of In Exile and Other Stories by Mary Halleck Foote. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story six The Watchman Part three. He was but an idle watchman all that day, so sure he was that the ditch was right and Solomon the author of all his troubles. And Solomon was fixed at last. Weariness overcame him, and at the end of his beat he slept, under the lee of the ditch-bank, instead of returning to his camp. Next morning he was riding along at his usual pace when it struck him how incredibly the ditch had fallen. The line of silt that marked the water's normal depth now stood exposed and dry, full two feet above its running and the pulse of the current had weakened as though it were ebbing fast. He put his horse to a run, and lightened ship as he went, casting off his sack of oats, then his coat and such tools as he could spare. He might have been traced to the scene of disaster by his impedimenta strewing the ditch-bank. The water had had hours the start of him. Its work was sickening to behold. A part of the bank had gone clean out, and the ditch was returning to the river by way of Solomon Lark's alfalfa fields. The homestead itself was in danger. He cut sagebrush and tore up tules by the roots, and piled them as a wing-dam against the outer bank, and heaped dirt like mad upon the mats, and as he worked, alone, where forty men were needed, came Nancy, with glowing face, flying down the ditch-bank, calling the word of exquisite relief. I've shut off the water. Was that right? Right! He had been wishing himself two men, nay, three, one at the bank and one at the gates and one carrying word to Finlayson. Can I do anything else? Yes, make Finlayson's camp quick as you can, Travis panted over a shovelful of dirt he was heaving. Yes, what shall I tell him? Tell him to send up everything he has got, every man and team and scraper. Nancy was gone, but in a few moments she was back again, wringing her hands and as white as a cherry blossom. The water is all down round the house, and father is alone in bed, crying like a child. There is nothing to cry about now. You turned off the water. See, it has almost stopped. Can I leave him with you? Great Scott, I'll take care of him, but go, there's a blessed girl. You will save the ditch. Nancy went, covering the desert miles as a bird flies. She exulted in this chance for reparation. But long after Finlayson's forces had arrived and gone to work, she came lagging wearily homeward, all of a color, herself and the pony, with the yellow road. She had refused a fresh horse at the ditch camp and, sparing the whip, reached home not until after dark. Her father's excitement in his hours of loneliness had waxed to a pitch of childish frenzy. He wept, he cursed, he counted his losses, and when his daughter said to comfort him, Why, father, surely they must pay for this, he threw himself about in his bed and gave way to lamentations in which the secret of his wildness came out. He had done the thing himself, and he dared not risk suspicion and the investigation that would follow a heavy claim for damages. Nancy could not believe him. 
"'Father, do be quiet. You didn't do any such thing,' she insisted. "'How could you, when I know you haven't stirred out of this bed since night before last? "'Hush now. You're dreaming. You're out of your head.' "'I guess I know what I done. I ain't crazy, and I ain't a fool. "'I made this hole first, before he caught me at the upper one. "'I made this one to keep him busy on his way up, "'so's the upper one could get a good start. "'The upper one wouldn't a hurt us. "'It's just like my cussed luck. "'I knew it was a-comin', but I didn't think I'd get it like this. "'It's all his fault, the great lazy loafer.' sleepin' at the bottom of his beat, instead of comin' up as he'd ought to have done last evening. He wasted the whole night, and calls himself a watchman. "'Well, I'm glad of it,' Nancy cried excitedly. "'I'm just glad we are washed out, and I hope this will end it.' And she burst into tears, and ran out of the room. She sat by herself, weeping and storming, in the dark little shed-room. "'Nancy!' she heard her father calling. "'Nancy, child! Where's that gal taking herself off to? Are you a-settin' up your back on account of that ditch? If you are, you ain't no child of mine. I'm dumb sorry I let on a word to her about it. How do I know but she's off with it now to that watchman feller? I'll be put in the papers, an old man informed on by his daughter, and he on his last sick-bed. "'Nancy, I say, where be ye hiding yourself?' Nancy returned to her forlorn charge, and after a while the old man fell asleep. She put out the lamp, for she could see to move about the room by the light of the sagebrush bonfires that flared along the ditch, lighting the men and teams, all Finlayson's force, at work upon the broken bank. The sight was wild and alluring. She went out to watch the strange army of shadows shifting and intermingling against a wall of flame. There was a distressful space to cross, of sand and slippery mud and drowned vegetation, including the remains of her garden. The look of everything was changed. Only the ditch-bank against the reddened sky supplied the usual landmark. Its crest was black with shovelers and up and down in lurid light climbed the scraper teams, climbed and dumped and dropped over the bank to climb again, like figures in a stage procession. There was a bedlam roar and crackle of pitchy fires, rattle of harness, clank of scraper pans, shouts of men to the cattle, oaths and words of command, and this would go forward unceasingly till the banks held water. And what was the use of contending? Nancy felt bitterly the insignificance of such small scattered folk as her father, pitiful even in their spite. Their vengeance was like the malice of field mice or rabbits, which the farmers fenced out of their fields into the desert where they belonged. What could such as they do, either to help or hinder this invincible march of capital into the country where they, with untold hardships, had located the first claims? And some of them were ready enough, for a little temporary relief, to part with their birthright to these clever sons of Jacob. Out we go, to find some other wilderness for them to take away from us. We are only mossbacks said the daughter of Esau. 
As she spoke, half aloud to herself, a man rushed past her down the bank, flattened himself on his hands, laid his face to the water, and drank, and paused to pant, and drank again, while she could have counted a score. Then he lifted his head, sighed, and stretched himself back with a groan of complete exhaustion. The firelight touched his face and showed her Travis, haggard, hollow-eyed, soaked with ditch-water, and matted with mud, looking as if he had been dragged bodily through the ditch-bank like thread through a piece of cloth. Nancy did not try to avoid him. "'Oh, is it you?' he marveled, softly smiling up at her. "'What a splendid ride you made! Did nobody thank you? Finlayson said he couldn't find you when he was leaving camp.' Nancy answered not a word. She was trembling so that she feared to betray herself by speaking. "'I was coming to say good-bye when I had washed my face,' he continued. "'I got my time to-night.' "'Your time?' "'My time-check. They are going to put another man in my place. So you needn't hate me any longer on account of the ditch. You can transfer all that to the next fellow.' "'Isn't that just like them? They never can do anything fair.' like who? Do you suppose I'm going to kick about it? The only wonder is they kept me on so long." Every word of Travis's was a knife in Nancy's conscience, to say nothing of her pride. She hugged her arms in her shawl and rocked herself to and fro. Travis crawled up the bank a little way further and stretched himself humbly beside her. The dark shadows under his aching eyes started a pang of pity in the girl's heart, sore beset as she was with troubles of her own. "'I'm glad it's duskish,' he remarked, so you can't see the sweet state I'm in. I'm all over topsoil. You might rent me to a Chinaman for twenty-five dollars an acre, and I don't need any irrigating, either.' An irresponsible laugh from Nancy was followed by a sob and then she gathered herself to speak. "'See here, do you want to stay on this ditch?' "'Of course I do. I wanted to stay till I had straightened out my own record and shown what the ditch can do. But no management under heaven could stand such work as this.' "'Then stay if you want to. You have only to say the word.' You said you'd inform if there was a next time, and there is. Father did it. He made this break, too. He made them both the same night, and didn't dare to tell of this one. Now go and clear yourself, and get back your beat." "'Are you sure of this you are telling me?' "'Well, I guess so. It isn't the sort of thing I'd be likely to make up. And I say you can tell if you want to.' I make you a present of the information. If father isn't willing to take the consequences, I am. And they half belong to me. I won't have anybody sheltering us or losing by us. We have got no quarrel with you." "'That is brave of you. I wish it was something more than brave,' sighed Travis. But I want it all myself. I can't spare this information to the company. You didn't do it for them, did you? When I go telling on my father to save a ditch, I guess it will be after now," said Nancy. 
If that rich company, with all its men and watchmen and teams and money, can't protect itself from one poor old man... Never mind the company, said Travis. What's mine is mine. This word you gave to me, it doesn't belong to my employers. You have saved me to myself. Now I shall not go kicking myself for sleeping that night on my beat. It's not so bad, or not half so bad, for me. Then go tell them and get the credit for it. Don't you mean to? She could not see him smile. When I tell, you will hear of it. But you talked about your record. I shall have to go to work and make a new record. Ah, if you would be as kind as you are brave. Was it all just for pride you told me this? Don't you care, not the least bit, about my part, that I am down and out of everything? It's your own fault, then. I have told you how you can clear yourself and stay. And lose my chance with you? I was thinking of coming back some day to tell you what you must know already. Nancy, you do know. You forget, shivered Nancy, I am the daughter of the man you called. Is that fair, to bring that up now? You mustn't deceive yourself. There are some things that can't be forgotten. How did I know what I was saying? A man isn't always responsible. I heard you, said Nancy. There are things we say when we are raging mad at a person, and there are things we say when we think them the dirt under our feet. You kept him down with your dirt shovel, and you called him what I can't ever forget. And this is the only hitch between us? I should think it was enough. Who despises my father despises me. But I do not despise him, Travis did not scruple to assert. The quarrel was not mine, and I'm not a ditch man any longer. I will apologize to your father. Oh, I know it costs you nothing to apologize. You don't mind father, an old man like him. You'd take him in and give him his meals and pat him on the head as you would the house-dog that bites because he's old and cross. Well, I'll let you know I don't want you to forgive him and apologize and all that stuff. I want you to get even with him. Be satisfied, said Travis. The only count I have against your father is through his daughter. There is no way for me to get even with you, and when you have spoiled a man's life just for one angry word— Not angry, she interrupted. I could have forgiven you that. For one word, then, and you call it square when you have given me a piece of information to use for myself against you. I will go back now and go to work. They can't say I haven't earned my wages on this beat. He looked down at her, longing to gather her with all her thorny sweetness to his breast, but her attitude forbade him. Can't we shake hands, he said. They shook hands in silence, and he went back and finished the night in the ranks of the shovelers, to work well, to love well, and to get his discharge at last. Yet Travis was not sorry that he had taken those five miles below Glen's Ferry. He had found something to work for. The company's officials marveled, as the weeks went by, 
that nothing was heard of Solomon Lark. He had ever been the sturdiest beggar for damages on the ditch. If he lacked an occasion, he could invent one. He was known to be a fanatic on the subject of the small farmer's wrongs. Yet now, with a veritable claim to sue for, the old Protestant was dumb. Had Solomon turned the other cheek? There were jokes about it in the office. They looked to have some fun with Solomon yet. In the early autumn the joking ceased. There was a final reason for the old man's silence. Solomon was dead. His ranch was rented to a Chinese vegetable gardener who bought water from the ditch. The company, through its officials, was disposed to recognize this unspoken claim that had perished on the lips of the dead. They made an estimate, and offered Nancy Lark a fair sum in consideration of her father's losses by the ditch. It was unusual for a company to volunteer a settlement of this kind. It was still more unusual for the indemnity to be refused. Nancy declined, by letter first. Then the manager asked her to call at the office. She did not come. He took pains to hunt her up at the house of her friends in town. He might have delegated the call, but he chose to make it in person, and was struck by an added dignity, a finer beauty in the saddened face of the girl, whom he remembered as a bit of a rustic coquette. He went over the business with her. She was perfectly intelligent in the matter. There had been no misunderstanding. Why, then, would she not take what belonged to her? Companies were not in the habit of paying claims that were claims of sentiment. I have made no claim, said Nancy. But you have one. You inherited one. We do not propose to rob. She put out her hand with a gesture of appeal. My father had no claim. He never made one, nor meant to make one. I am the best judge of what belongs to me. I don't want this money, and I will never take one cent of it. But there is a claim you can settle, if you are hunting up claims. It won't cost you anything, she faltered, as if some unguarded impulse had hurried her into a subject that she hardly knew how to go on with. She moved her chair back a little from the light. There was one of your watchmen on the Glen's ferry beat who lost his place on account of those breaks coming one after another. Oh, yes, said the manager, there were several that did. Which man do you refer to? The name she thought was Travis. Then blushing, she spoke out courageously. It was Mr. Travis. He was discharged just after the big break. You thought it was his carelessness, but it was not. I am the only one that can say so, and I know it. You lost the best watchman you ever had on the ditch when you took his name off your payroll. He worked for more than just his money's worth, and it hurt him to lose that place. Are you aware that he made the worst record of any man on the line? I don't care what his record was. He kept a good watch. It's no concern of mine to say so, she said, trembling and red and white, the tears shining in her honest eyes, she persisted. He had his reasons for never explaining, and they were nothing to be ashamed of. I think you might believe me. 
"'I do,' said the manager, willing to spare her. "'I will attend to the case of Mr. Travis when I see him. "'I do not think he has left the country. "'In fact, he was inquiring about you only the other day in the office, "'and he seemed very much concerned to hear of your—of the loss you have suffered. "'Shall I say that you spoke a good word for him?' "'You need not do that,' she answered with spirit. "'He knows whether he kept watch.' but you may say that I ask as a favor that he will answer all your questions, and you need not be afraid to question him. Travis was given back his beat, but no more explicit exoneration would he accept. The reason of his reinstatement was not made public, and naturally there was gossip about it among other discharged watchmen who had not been invited to try again. Two of these cynic philosophers, popularly known as soreheads, foregathered one morning at Glen's Ferry, and began to discuss the management and the ditch. "'Travis don't seem to have so much trouble with the water this year as he had last,' the first ex-watchman remarked. "'Used to get away from him on an average once a week, so I hear.' "'He's married his girl,' the other explained sarcastically. "'He's got more time to look after the ditch.' There is no sand now in Travis's bread. The prettiest girl on the ditch makes it for him, and walks beside him when the lights are fair and the shadows long on the ditch-bank. And it is a pleasure to record that both Nancy and the ditch are behaving as dutifully as girls and water can be expected to do when taken from their self-found paths and committed to the sober bounds of responsibility. Flowers bloom upon its banks, heaven is reflected in its waters, fair and broad are the fertile pastures that lie beyond, but the best-trained ditch can never be a river, nor the gentlest wife a girl again. End of Story 6, Part 3 End of In Exile and Other Stories by Mary Halleck Foote